So today's episode of 24-7 Artists is a really special one. I get a chance to sit with Kareem Latif. Kareem is a marketing and branding expert, someone I've worked with for over a decade now, and he drops a lot of gems from the perspective of the people we're reaching out to when we're asking for brand partnerships, right? So if you know about the revenue streams and the stuff I talk about as far as like how artists can make money with brands, it's important to understand that there are people behind these brands. And Kareem, to me, personifies the people behind these brands, especially a person of color who understands the culture. So this is a really special episode for any artists or artist team members. Uh, you know, listen to this, understand, you know, the psychology of a brand, understand how they make decisions, the risk that go into making decisions. Um, and I just think overall, it's a great conversation um, that you guys get privy to, to hear, you know, what we talk about. So hope you enjoy the convo. Follow Kareem Latif on social media, Instagram, Twitter. And thank you for tuning in to 247artists.com. How do I create a brand that's so valuable without the the value if that makes sense that's um, it and 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 that was the goal was like if i can get raheem devon to be like yo man he don't even have to mention me all he got to say is man had a great session last night and you just mm-hmm. keep seeing the same space then wale yo just wrote three three new records then tone p man amazing time last night then the next artist then rick ross comes to town yo great time with wale last night and now wale remembering i gave him the free time when rick ross comes to town and meek mill comes to town he's calling hey I need a spot, you do. Can I come through? So that became the culture. That was like, I was capturing these moments and having them market us. I started um, in my industry, I started in the industry 20 years ago um, as a sales rep um, in the liquor industry. And I kind of moved my way up into you know, strategy in terms of being a director of marketing, um, associate brand manager, director of marketing, director of culture, all these titles. But like I said, titles are irrelevant. What's most important for me is that I've been able to build some amazing bridges um, between some amazing culture creators, culture advocates, um, culture griots, and um, the brands I represented. Hmm. I love it. Bridge builder. That that makes a lot, lot of sense because like I said, I remember like the first time I saw an activation and it just, it fit park and DC and that night scene so well that it was almost like you couldn't tell who benefited more, which I think was like mm-hmm. the secret. So exactly. it's like if the brand got more love or, or park got more love or the people attending the event, like it was like everybody got such equal representation in that equation that I was like, Oh wow. Like, he gets it. He gets it at a level that like, that's the kind of person we need to work with. Yeah. That's important. So like what, what, what part of you, like what made you approach things in that way? That's a great question. I think um, it has to do a lot with how I was my upbringing. So I was born in Selma, Alabama, which is about, I mean, people that don't mean, I'm, I'm shame if you don't know what Selma, Alabama is about, but Selma, <laughs> Selma is like one of the, no, nah, I'm just kidding. No shame on you. Um, Selma is definitely one of the epicenters of the civil rights movement. So, you know, you know about the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the Bloody Sunday and the March Across the Bridge um, against voting for, you know, all for voting rights um, and many other, you know, things that we were trying to correct in the society. But, um, but yeah, as a kid, I grew up um, learning about that yearly, like just learned about that. Re- I went through so many reenactments 
of that. The city was very involved in communicating, like continuously re-educating um, everyone about that story. Um, so it was always this sense of just in terms of imagery, seeing the bridge, constantly driving by the bridge every day, um, wanting to understand how I could bridge communities, um, understanding how I could bridge, you know, ethnicities, bridge the world. This is always a recur reoccurring theme. So I end up like, as I started to figure out what I wanted to do in life in terms of my profession, uh, I started to kind of approach things almost like a culture anthropologist, like just trying to figure out how can I understand relations between human beings and other human beings. And initially when I went to college, I was actually gonna um, go into psychology, um, but I ended up, you know, somehow finding my way into business. But even within business, I was more interested in business relationships, just the relational side of things. Um, not only just doing a transaction, but understanding the environment around that transaction. Um, the, the, the psychology that goes into that transaction, both pre-transaction and post-transaction. So these were all things that, you know, I've always been concerned about. Um, and then I just happened to be a person that enjoyed culture as well. I enjoy hip hop. I enjoy music, art, all aspects of culture. Um, diasporically, not just, you know, American culture, but just diasporically understanding, you know, um, indigenous cultures and things like that. So when I, when I get this question, it's kind of hard because all of that that I discussed really made me into who I am now. It just shaped my, shaped my approach to business. I don't approach business as a transactional professional. Like I always prefer, I always prefer to take the relational route. Uh, I try to find, try to build and bridge connections. That's a powerful answer. And, and it's funny, relationships is like the, the running thread of this podcast. Like I said, you're the fifth or sixth person we, we've had to combo with. And I think that word has come up multiple times every time. So, you know, you, you find yourself in school, you're thinking about psychology. So you're, you're thinking about people at the end of the day, but you go into business and then you approach this like curiosity or this thought of people and, and how they move, how they interact, how they respond. And you apply that to business. So now, you know, you're, you're in college, you're thinking, okay, I, I have this love of culture, love of, of understanding how people move and operate and what makes them tick. How then do you get into the world of, of marketing and branding and, and bridge building as, as you've called it? Um, I think one of the things that I did was I had a very curious mind. So I raised my hand for a lot of different like extra products that, you know, allowed me to kind of learn a new skill. Um, so give me an example. You know, I, I knew very early that a big part of marketing is communication. You know, you can have the amazing, the most amazing message in the world, but it's like, how do you communicate that message to the other person to inspire them internally to make whatever call to action you have happen? If it's to buy, if it's to sign up for your newsletter, if it's to take this trip, whatever it is, what, what, how you communicate that um, is going to matter in terms of trying to achieve that outcome. So I started to kind of raise my hand for any opportunity I could to get me in front of people, help me with communication. So I start like give you an example. I was like the um, editor. I didn't know how to edit it. All. I was editor, floor director, camera guy for a local um, broadcasting station um, that was near my campus. So I did that. I signed up for that. At the same time I did that, I was also volunteering. I wanted to understand how festivals work. So I was like, I ended up getting a, a job uh, with festival productions in New Orleans, which is like the company that produces like the jazz festival. 
Um, they also work with Essence. Well, they, at the time, they worked with Essence to help um, create the uh, Essence Festival, produce an Essence Festival. I was working with them. Also, around the same, well, right before that, I had a job at a record store. So I could start to communicate with people that's coming in and help them, you know, decide not only on what they came to buy, but help them also to explore new um, new, new music within the genre, outside the genre. And through that, I just, all these opportunities that I was just raising my hand for, any opportunity I had, helped me to shape my messaging, helped me to shape my understanding of different cultures. It helped me to build a tolerance of different cultures. It helped me to like, I don't know, break down these preconceived notions of, of who people are. You know, it kind of challenged me. You know, I, I just start to look at like the breadth of culture, not just like face on. I started to look at just the diversity even within a single culture. I mean, I don't know, it's, it's so, it's, it's exciting to me, man. Like that aspect of marketing is more exciting to me than actually the transaction that needs to get done, the actual buying of the alcohol beverage product or the clothing or whatever. Me understanding the cultural context um, and, and, and the thought process around what motivates people to buy and what motivates them to become like a casual purchase per, uh, consumer to being an evangelist. Like what, mm -hmm. what is all that noise in between? Like what gets them excited? Mm -hmm. What makes them, uh, you know, travel through that journey to become an adorer, become an enthusiast about a brand? That is the things that excite me. And so much of that has to do with messaging. Yep. Oh man, that's a, a, a great answer. I love it because, you know, when you speak about putting your hand up or raising your hand, that's something I, I tell our, our kids, but also anyone that like asks, uh, if they're if they're trying to get in the industry, if they're a lover of culture, but they're not really sure they're fit, specifically people who know they aren't necessarily going to be the artist or not the rapper, the singer. They may do that, but that's not their passion. That's not what they want to do for a living, but they want to be connected to the culture. And I'll tell them, just try just like just try different shit. Just like go to a studio or go to a shop or go to a nightclub or go to a bar like and, and it doesn't have to be something that's in your world. In fact, you probably better off going to, uh, you know, like our first events we did were at the Barking Dog in Bethesda. Like mm -hmm. they did rock shows and like grunge rock shows. And like, so my first ever time putting together events was in a space where like, I'm not the face of what that looks like. And to have to understand how to communicate to those people, and make them feel good, made it so easy for me when I then started doing our hip hop and like R&B shows. Cause it was like, if I can get through to someone whose music I'm not even listening to like that, what happens when you put me in a room with the people that like, I can like say, Oh no, nah, I know Tyler Quali. Like I listen to that mixtape, but it's like, I, I, it made me focus on the nuances that much more because I couldn't just get by with like talking about stuff that we were connected to. I had to really understand like, oh, okay, this is a really big band. Why? What, what's their name? Where they do their shows. Okay. Meet the manager. And then you also see the similarities and like, Oh, but we're also not that different. Like a hip hop head and a rock head. Or, or at the time, like Moonbatone and all that was killing in DC. Yeah. Like, it's it's not that different. The cult, subcultures are very similar, just maybe a different BPM. So, I love that you you put your hand up and you said, okay, I'll get experience. And then I I'll speak also to the record store. Like, one of the things it's it's a nuanced group now, but back in the day when you had to go and buy CDs and records, and the only way you knew it was good was you either had a friend or family member who was like a tastemaker. And we all have them or you're going to buy a CD and while you're there, the person at the counter, and usually you'd have that one person that becomes mm -hmm. your guy or your girl, would be like, 
hey, you ain't heard of so-and-so? Like, that's how I learned about Redman, because I was buying a bus for Rhymes album. And they were like, yo, you don't listen to Redman? It was like, nah, I mean, I know of him, but like, nah, if you like Busta, you'll like Redman. And then you get the Redman CD, and, and when you had to buy a whole album and listen to it, and you spent $20 hard-earned money, you're going to give it your attention. And that person knows that. So they're not going to yeah. put you on a no crap. They're not going to... They don't care what the store is trying to push on the end cap. They're, they're giving you the hidden gem to be like, yo, there's two of these left. You you need one of these. So I know that you probably picked up so much there. Oh, all, that person becomes your human algorithm. Like, that's it. That's it. Like that person understands after a while you come into the store more and more often, especially the neighborhood store. My store was a popular store. I started to remember faces. I know what you bought the last time. I started to connect you with similar music the same way on Amazon, the same way on Spotify. That was that was me. That was the people. Those are people like me. Like they're not. Yeah. We don't see it that way, but that's what you kind of train to be as you're in these yeah. roles, and you just apply that same type of algorithmic thinking to whatever else you do. I mean, yeah. so I was going to add that as a young person watching this, I definitely think it's very important for you to be curious at this age and to be have the audacity to try as much stuff as possible. You're not supposed to have everything figured out. So I did a lot of types of jobs. I'm going to get into all of those. I mentioned, I gave you three examples. I did a lot of stuff that gave me a lot of skills that made me like a generalist. And then as you do more and more things, you become a better generalist. And then you're able to specialize in whatever thing that you become really good at or that you like. You, you go from being a generalist to a specialist, specialist, you know, and then an expert. So that's kind of how it works. But you won't know what you want to do and you won't know what you're good at if you just think you have it all figured out early in life, like you have to be a generalist, yep. allow yourself to make some mistakes, allow yourself to mm -hmm. get into some dead end jobs that don't make any sense. But at least, you know, now that's not what you want to do, but you got to like know what you um, you got to be able to explore and, and, and see what works for you, you know, so that's very important. I love it. I love it. So now you have these jobs and, and these experiences, right? Your jazz festival, you're, you're selling records, you're learning film production, and that's got its own nuances within the crew and then the external and, and like, you know, organization, structure, communication. So you're applying these skills and learning these skills in real time. Then when do you kind of make that transition to like, okay, now I'm working and representing a brand or like I'm, I'm working and representing brands and like I'm, I'm now entrusted with their vision or they're entrusting me with my vision for their brand. Yeah, I think um, that happened, that was more of a situational thing. So basically, um, just to keep it real with you, you know, uh, I was living in New Orleans. I was doing all these creative jobs. Um, like I didn't mention, I worked for Def Jam and all these different things I was doing, um, but they weren't really paying me the money I needed to sustain myself. So um, <clears throat> I decided to drive from New Orleans to East Coast, starting in Baltimore. I started looking for a more professional job. That's when I started. That was, that was my first introduction to corporate America. I went from like more so working in the culture, kind of unpolished kind of jobs. It's kind of like they weren't there very corporate, kind of more like non-traditional. Um, some of them, not saying they weren't corporations, but I'm saying my job wasn't like super structured. So moving from that to corporate America, I got my first job actually with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. So that's not, I know that's a totally <laughs> different, there's a drastic move from what I was doing in culture to that. But this is what I'm saying. You got to try things, you got to do things. I, I moved to the East Coast. I could not really find a job in culture. I couldn't find a job exactly what I wanted. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted, to be honest with you, yet. 
So I um, got a job with Enterprise Rent-A-Car and it was a job that I really had to bust my butt. Like it really was a job where I didn't understand what I was doing at the time, but it really was training me to be an entrepreneur. Like I really was like washing cars, running back inside, signing the contract to give you the car, going outside, dealing with issues in the snow, you know, at the same time, I got her a suit on. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what is this? I didn't sign up for this. This is crazy. So I did that for like nine months, but then I started to realize that, okay, this is not what I want to do. So again, as a, as, a, as a young person, I definitely had a lot of audacity. I started to bring a resume to work with me and I started to keep a folder with resumes. I knew at some point I was going to have an executive that, would, that had an issue with his car that was going to come in and going to need a ride to the body shop or wherever to pick up his car. Um, so I ended up one day, ended up giving my resume to a uh, executive at Black & Decker. And that executive saw my resume. He, uh, he, was, he, had, he, he was so impressed that I had the audacity to give him the resume. And, you know, that he actually uh, fast-tracked me through an interview process, and I got a job with, um, with Black & Decker. And quickly, when I got into Black & Decker, I started to realize, that's when I started to realize privilege. That's, that's really when that came into mind, like racial privilege, things like that. Because I had an undergrad degree in marketing, and now I got to the point where I started to see other people in the marketing roles, and I started to see all these different hierarchies. Now I'm really into corporate and I started to realize what I wanted to do. Then I'm like, oh, I want to get into brand management. I want to get into strategy, making decisions about brands and creating advertising campaigns and things like that. And I realized that even though I had this degree, I couldn't do it. It's like, but I saw, I saw like non-black people. I saw white people around me um, that did not necessarily have the credentials I had, but they had privilege. So I was like, okay, oh, that's how I started realizing I got to like, in order for me to do this, I got to either know someone to get to that point or I have to go deeper into my academic bag and get an MBA or something like that. So I decided at that point to like leave, go back home, um, study for the GMAT and get my MBA. And when I got my MBA, that's when I got into the alcohol beverage industry where you know me from. That's when I got into that industry. That started my whole journey into where I am now, you know, um, but it took me constantly like observing what was happening around me, you know, being willing to make that reset, uh, being willing to go the extra mile to get more knowledge and do whatever I got to do to get there. So you constantly have those points in your life where you have to adjust. Not saying you got to get an MBA, not saying you got to do this, but I'm saying you have to constantly sit back and like do a SWOT analysis on yourself yep. um, and realize, okay, where are my gaps? And of course, when you look at the environment, it may not be fair. Of course, we know the history of this country. We not only have to go there, but we know the history of the country, but we also know enough to know now what we have to do to maneuver in it. So that's yeah. kind of, you know, I took those lumps and kind of like reset, went back to my MBA and got into alcohol beverage industry. And from there, I just kind of uh, fast tracked through a bunch of different positions to where I am now, but constantly, constantly resetting, you know, recalibrating, adding on new skills. So it's all about, a, it's all about having a tool belt with a bunch of skills on you to make yourself mm -hmm. more competitive. Learn as much as you can. Even those, even the enterprise rental car job taught me something. It taught yeah. me how to think on the spot. It taught me how to deal with conflict. You got to imagine the person that comes in and had an accident. They don't want to pay any money for their car. You know, they, they have a lot, lot of issues at home around the kitchen table. Last thing they want to do is come in and deal with somebody in a suit trying to rent them a car and give them insurance. Like it's like I don't want none of that. So I constantly had to deal with people that were completely a holes every day, mm -hmm. and it taught me how to like deal with conflict. It taught me resolution. It taught me how to communicate, get back to that messaging. It taught me how to shift the narrative, shift the conversation. 
And all those things prepared me for what I'm doing now. And I, mm-hmm. at the time, I was like, man, this job is stupid. Yeah. But it was just adding, I didn't even realize it was adding a, adding a, a notch on my tool belt that I could yeah. dig into later when I needed. Um, so, so yeah, I don't I know if it. I even answered your question. Yeah, you answered answer it that. perfectly. I, I think <laughs> the word you used that I love is audacity and, and I'll share a similar story. So well before all this music and business and all that, I worked at Home Depot in my early twenties and I worked overnight unloading the trucks and stocking the shelves. And I worked the hardest uh, departments, which was basically building materials, uh, lumber, doors, all the heavy shit. And what would happen is sometimes they'd misorder, they'd overorder, and you'd have more items than you'd have room for. And when you're talking about large quantities of, of wood or large quantities of, of doors, you can't just put them up overhead. So I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, you'd go to Home Depot some days and it'd be like aisles of just like stuff in the middle of the Home Depot until they sold it. And so one day I, I remember telling the, the night manager, I was like, we have all this space outside. Why don't we just put like a, an awning and like put the excess stuff outside? And he was like, no, nah, we can't do that. And I was like, but, but why? Like we have this unused space that like we're not using. And he was like, nah, but we can't do that. Like older guy, manager, been there for years, had the badge, you know, 20 years. I'm yeah, there for a few months talking about why don't yeah. we? So me being who I've always been, I was like, I'm just going to do it. So I got a couple of the guys at Home Depot and we literally built an awning. We have all the supplies in the actual store. We literally did it during our lunch and I'd stacked everything outside underneath it and we put a, a gate up. So the next morning the manager comes and he sees this like well put together like presentation on the outside. And he's like, yo, who did that? And the manager thinking I'm going to get in trouble to try to throw me into the bus. He's like, oh, you do. And he was like, man, I really appreciate that. He said, we literally just had a meeting with like the corporate office trying to figure out how to solve this issue of like mm. stuff being in the aisles and no one in this room, no, the MBAs, the people who've been there for years, the no one stood up and said this and you by yourself on lunch took it upon yourself to like, just build this and like solve this problem. So like I became an assistant manager at like, I think I was 19 or 20 years old at Home Depot off mm. of that move. Like they created a position for me just to like solve problems in the stores um, at the time. And that's who I, I've always been a problem solver. I'm an engineer by nature. I went to school for architectural engineering, but I was very bored at my internship. But really what I like engineering is like, I like solving problems. I love having a conversation and being like, mm-hmm. all right, give me a couple of days. Let me come back. I know how, like we'll, we'll work this out. And so like, but the audacity part is I feel like there are a lot of people like me, they just won't do it. They, they don't have the audacity to be like, man, like, let me just build this thing and put it out. Cause it makes sense to me. And, and you're saying we can't do it, but like, you're not giving me a reason other than we can't. You're not saying there's a fire code. You're not saying like legally we can't, you're just saying we can't, meaning you haven't tried it. And so I, I love that you're like, you know what? Like I got to a place where I realized like I either need access to people that I don't have, or I need an MBA, I'm a reset. And that, that to me is that so important. Like, let me just do this reset and get myself where I need to be. And then even in that, had you done it and it didn't work out, you would have learned something new. You would have had another tool in your belt you would have added value along the way to other people. And whether it's a guy in a car you're giving your resume to or someone in the MBA program that become lifelong friend, something good comes of that audacious move. So like, I love that word audacity. Now that's a great story that you said. I want to go back to your story. So, so you mentioned when you made that decision, you hadn't been on a job that long. Had you, how long have you been on a job? Six months. Like six and the guy months. that, 
The guy that said it can't be done, the guy that was saying that, how long have you been on the job? Like 20 years. Okay, so that's a, so I want people to dig into this. That's a very common thing. So what happens is, this makes a lot of sense. So what happens is a lot of times when you get into corporate America, corporate America kind of beats you out of that audacity. It kind of beats that out of you. So I, 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 I actually understand his psychosis, like his, 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 his mentality. I'm sorry. Um, because what happened is you start to become less of a risk taker. And that's when you start to kind of die slowly. And that's why you see a lot of people in corporate America that's miserable. That they might be getting a lot of checks, but they're really unhappy. And, mm-hmm. and, and then that's why a person like myself that constantly tries to reset. I, the resetting is all about just regaining that freedom again, like regaining that audacity again. That's what it's really all about. It's like not becoming that person that's just scared to take the risk because they're scared of repercussions. Repercussions could mean, I don't take this light. Repercussions could mean you lose your job. Maybe you have kids at home. You have an amazing house. Because what happens usually as you get more into success, your, your lifestyle changes. So you get the big houses, you get the cars, and that becomes your slave master. You know, to be honest with you, like that becomes your slave master. So now you got to keep feeding that. So now the willingness to make take a risk and lose that becomes a really big dilemma for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's very important for you to constantly throughout your life to look around yourself and reset. Even if it's not yeah. taking a big drastic change, but just reset your thinking. Like, okay, boom. All right. What's more important for me? Like, what, what are the things that really matter? What am I willing to lose to get to that next level? What am I willing to lose to, to develop myself? What am I willing to lose to, to get to my long-term goal? Um, so you got to be not, not, not only just what you're willing to get, but what are you willing to lose? Is, mm. It becomes a major recurring question that you're going to be faced with as you move through corporate, non-corporate, entrepreneurship, whatever you're doing. That's going to be something that's going to come. Sacrifice. No. You're 100% right. And, and I'll speak to the flip side of it. As House, our, our original company, you know, we've sold it now. But as we were kind of elevating, I went from the guy who would put the hole in the wall and figure it out on the other side to once I had a team and I'm paying salaries and now we got kids and I've got this rent that's higher than I ever thought I'd make a month. And, you know, we've got now like Best of DC Awards. And these, like then that risk become like I remember interns would come in and be like, we should do this. And I'd be like, no, 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 we can't. Like, you don't understand if that goes wrong, if someone gets hurt, if like, and I, I found myself becoming that, that guy with a 20 year badge. And I had to call a reset on myself where I was like, all right, guys, like time out. Let's do yep. this again. Like, let's, let's re-envision what house is because I don't want to be stuck here. Like it was, I, I felt like I was just playing the role. I was showing up and take, having meetings and like smiling but I wasn't solving problems anymore. And I was afraid to even address the problems because if one thing went wrong, it's like, Oh, like I don't want to make a mistake where I have to fire anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it like, so I've, I've been on both sides. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just like genius. Like now nah, I remember like it got to a point at house and it wasn't, I wasn't 20 years and I was maybe five or six years in. And, and I remember yeah. feeling like, yo, like these young, every year I'd have new interns and every year the new interns would come with these ideas like, oh, we should do a Snapchat. And I'm like, nah, like yeah. we should do this on a Snapchat. I'm like, yeah, we can't really put that on a snap because what if, you know, the language and we got brand partners and like, mm-hmm. then I found out, I was like, well, like, who are you? Like, what, what have you become? Like, you were that intern. Like, so, <laughs> so we, we definitely that. hit a reset and then I got to a point where it was like every month we'd sit with our team and I'd be like, all right, everyone put an idea in and we're going to do one of these ideas. And that's kind of what birthed a lot of our best programs and like content ideas. And, and even some of our events and activations came from giving these people a chance. 
who would have never had that opportunity, but it was my way of saying like, I know I'm, I'm my role is to make sure everybody eats. So it's hard mm -hmm. for me to connect at that level, but let me sit in a room with y'all and let y'all say some crazy ass shit. And then that's like, we did a partnership with Howard university. We would go up and like do like open mics and like live perform and like all these cool things that came from these kids who were at Howard, who were like, you do, if we could go and talk about the music industry, that would be really dope. And I can get 30 people to come out. And I'm like, you can get 30 kids to come out. Like no way. And then we'd show up and 200 kids would come out. And I'd be like, I never in my life, I would have never thought of that because I'm not at yeah. Howard. I'm not seeing what the kids don't have access to. I'm not seeing how many journalism majors at Howard really want to be a studio owner, but there's no program for that. So like, you're absolutely right. I've been on both sides. So I just wanted to make it clear. I'm not a genius. Wow. I'm, I'm definitely- I get it. I get, I'm glad you shared it. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. Right. Nah, so that, so, so then you, you get your MBA and, and now you're, you're in the food and beverage or the liquor and, and spirit space where, like you said, that was my connection to you. Now it makes a lot more sense to me because by this point, your tool belt is probably more diverse than anyone else in that space that I've met mm -hmm. as far as what you've been privy to your upbringing, your, 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 your Selma upbringing, your jobs, your, your experiences, jazz festivals and seeing activations done at every level your production experience now, like, you know, a video shoot, regardless at what level is the most stressful shit in the world. Cause one, you can't re-record. So like having to be perfect one time. So I can now, it makes sense to me. Cause like, like I said, every time I've been to anything you're a part of, I'm like, oh, this is really done well at every level. Like I can't find the fault. And I'm, I'm, I'm the guy constantly looking for the thing that's like, what's wrong? How, how can I make this better? So whenever I come across something that I can't make better, I'm like, oh, like who's, who's behind this? So, so now you're in this space. You're, you obviously are a people person, you're a bridge builder. What, what's your kind of like, I've arrived. What's your, I've made my stamp or made my mark with this idea or this move now that you're in this, this liquor and in spirit space. It's really when I started to see impact like this, this to be a success, you recognize what I do. You saw me it, it, when, when you're, a multicultural, I would say, when you're a black person in corporate America, is more about, it's less about success sometimes. Sometimes it's about being seen and feeling seen. Because you, you're unseen so much. Now, I don't want to like, I don't want to like belittle that. You're unseen so much. So much of what I was doing in terms of getting my MBA, in terms of raising my hand, all these things are really just to be seen. Not only just in the culture, of being seen in between the four walls of that corporate building. So for me, it was about when I started to have these type of conversations like this, when I started to see the culture like rallying around my ideas and my concepts, I felt seen. And, and so like that's, that's, that's what I enjoyed and that's what I tried to offer to other people. Like that's why everything I did was about making sure people that created culture felt seen. I, made, I basically funded that journey for them from that idea to, you know, proof of concept, to greater visibility, to being seen. Um, so that's, that's mainly what it's been for me because it's, it's been like, when I, when I first started, you know, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the people that's making the decisions about culture are not from the culture. They don't look like anyone in the culture. They're making decisions. So it's very important, a person like myself, not only just me, as other, other people that's like me out there, but we're, we're bridge builders. So you have to kind of 
take those people that are outside the culture uh, and bring them into the culture. Before there was a person like myself that is, is I would say, an expert in culture marketing, the brands were speaking to the culture, like talking at them, talking at them, just talking at them. Hey, look at the sign, look at this. Let me grab the celebrity, put it in front of you, boom. When I, my brand of philosophy, my brand of marketing is really about speaking through the consumer. I don't want you to miss that. It went from speaking to the consumer to speaking through the consumer, allowing the consumer to take that message. Oh, boom. And the consumer being the culture creators, the la- I'm talking about levels of consumer, I'm talking about the culture creators, the ones that are movers and shakers, the influencers, you know, allowing them to understand the message, see themselves in the message, and then take that message and translate it in a way that their tribe or community understands it. And once that happens, then they could tend, then they can start to communicate the brand and the consumer, they can start to build some amazing things. So for me, it's all about that particular process of speak transitioning from speaking to the consumer to speaking through the consumer. That's the only way it's gonna win. Consumers are way more influenced by peer-to-peer influencing than they are about a brand telling them what to drink or what to do. It's 100%. always gonna be it's, we, we've been that way since kids. Your parents could tell you mm-hmm. anything but you're way more going to be influenced by your friends and what they're doing and what they yeah. tell you. Yeah. So that's, that's the same. We never lost that. And I understood that it's the same thing. I, I love it. And, and, and you, you've done a, an amazing job of it. And, and I, I, like I said, I'll applaud you. I got to give you your flowers because I'm not a liquor drinker by any means. Like I'm not, I'm like the, that's not my thing. But I remember going to your events and like being comfortable enough to like try one of the drinks or like just like you, you felt like not not forced, but you felt like, why not? And, and and then I found like, oh, there are drinks I like, like I don't drink cognac, but this cognac mix, whatever it is, like, OK, I could rock with that. And then you 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 made it you made it make sense. And and again, I, I always try to like relate it to something I've done, because for the people listening who especially know me, like. When we first started our studio, we had no money. When I say no money, I'm not like, we had no money, literally. We had 30 days to make rent, and that was our cycle. 30 days, 30 days. Mm-hmm. So, which means we had no marketing budget, right? We didn't have a dollar amount that we could pull from for marketing. But what I knew we had was we had access to the cultural people in, in the hip-hop scene in D.C. I knew that, like, I could call Phil Day early on. I knew I could call Logic. I knew I could call Tabby Benet, Raheem Devon. And I knew I had something they needed, which was just a creative space. Mm-hmm. And so our launch of social media, we used Facebook first and then eventually Instagram was we didn't post ads. We never posted studio rates. We never posted come record with us. Like I refused to do that because I felt like every other brand did that. What I did was I would give studio time to these cultural people and in exchange, I'd say, let me film what you do. And I won't put anything out until the song releases, but once it releases, just let me post it. And more importantly, I'm going to send it to you to post Mm. because I knew that like me posting you in my studio. Now everyone posts everybody in everybody's studio. So it's not, I'm saying this in 2021 and someone's going to be like, duh. But like when we did it, no one was doing this, but Mm. it was like, it didn't make like me posting you in my studio, like only my people would see it, but you Mm. posting you in my studio meant everybody who was connected to you would see it. And 99% of those people were not connected to me. So that was my advertising. I was like, all right, once a week, how can I get this group of people? And I created a list of people that I felt like had the 
eyes, ears, and hearts of the DC culture, specifically hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. How can I get them in my studio? And then how can I get them to share it? And that the formula was very simple. That's how Simon Kim became a part of, of House Studios. Simon mm-hmm. was the dopest videographer I knew by far. Still to this day, I like second to oh, none. Yeah. He's a storyteller. Yeah. And I was like, no studio has a storyteller full time. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I can get a full time storyteller to just capture these random studio moments that no one ever sees and then mm-hmm. have the artist share these moments in such a cool, dynamic documentary style way that mm-hmm. no one's ever given to them, it's going to work itself out. And That's very great. quickly. And when I say very quickly, it was like within two months, our phones like we were literally overbooked and we were expanding the building because everyone was trying to figure out, like, yo, how do I get in this place that I keep hearing about? I keep seeing mm-hmm. about but if you go back, you'll see we we didn't post ads. We didn't say two you know four hours for fit like because I just knew it would water our brand down. I was like, how do I create a brand that's so valuable without the the value? If that makes sense, that's um, it. And 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 that was the goal. Was like if I can get Raheem Devon to be like, yo man, he don't have to mention me. All he got to say is, man, I had a great session last night. And you just mm-hmm. keep seeing the same space. Then Wale, yo. Just wrote three, three new records. Then Tone P, man, amazing time last night. Then the next artist. Then Rick Ross comes to town. Yo, great time with Wale last night. And now Wale, remembering I gave him the free time, when Rick Ross comes to town and Meek Mill comes to town, he's calling, hey, I need a spot, you can I come through? So that became the culture. That was like, I was capturing these moments and having them market us. And and now obviously everyone does it, but even still, like I'll tell like some of these studios and brands like, no, the goal is not for you to post everything like you can, but mm-hmm. it's so much better if they post it for you. So just like have some more the camera there. And even if it's just a photo, just like capture a moment that makes someone feel like, how do I get that? And if you can have someone else talk about you exactly what you said, that's the best form of marketing. Yeah, that's 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 what I consider culturally inclusive marketing. You know, inclusive marketing, a lot of times they look at it like let's get black people, white people, Asian people. LGBT all together. That's that's macro. That's cool. But this is to me a culturally inclusive market. When you invite the culture is a part of the marketing, they're spreading the word, you know, they're participating in it. Like that is culture inclusive marketing. That's exactly what yeah. we were able to do. Same thing you just mentioned with like that's why I've been able to be successful with brands like yeah. Surat. When I'm when I when I came to DC, myself and uh, late Gary Richards, who I passed away. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, Flex of Glenn, a bunch of different people. Um, we were able to create, working with a lot of, you know, um, culture creators, Miles, the other people, and create like District district of Surat. So we turned yep. DC into District of Surat and became more of a tribal a tribal thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, yep. you want to be a part of this. It didn't, need, it didn't require me to create these ads and billboards and stuff like that. Now you have an army of a hundred people that feel like they're part of something. Yeah. And now everybody outside of that is like, what you got is a thousand who want this? to be a part of that hundred. You're like, what yeah. is this? Like, that's culturally inclusive yeah. marketing. And that uh-huh. you can't pay for. That comes from being yeah. in the culture, understanding the culture, participating, engaging with the culture, making them feel seen. Going back to that, like, you can't pay for that. You can't pay for that. You have to get into it. And same thing with Martel. Cognac did the same thing there. Like, it's just like, it's the same formula. But it's it's really it's really rooted in more of my approach, it's more of a, a culturally inclusive approach that I take. That's about making sure people feel seen. So now I'll go back to audacity. You, you the the Ciroc campaign, which I remember vividly because I was not a district of Ciroc member. I didn't drink vodka, but I just remember 
call him. I was like, what I got to do to get on this list, man? I feel like I need to be a part of this thing. So like it worked because even the non-drinkers wanted to be a part of it. Um, But how how do you go about pitching an idea like that? And again, Ciroc, which is a more culturally, I think, aware brand. But even in that, it's still a corporate brand. And D.C. being a quote unquote mid-market, but I think in the in the liquor world, we we got to be up there. We're obviously not in New York, but like, how 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 did you pitch that? And and like, what's that approach that you take to pitch that like idea? I mean, again, it's like these are people I'm talking to that is not a part of the culture. Like that that is a recurring theme throughout my career. Like really, I'm like usually one of two African American. Not saying you have to be African American be culturally competent. I'm just saying it just happens to be that I'm usually the only African American or one or two African Americans in the room um black and brown representation in the room so a lot of times not only am i pitching i have to educate so i have to educate give the cultural context on what i'm pitching and then pitch it and then almost have a guarantee of social proof like guarantee of success because there's not a lot of leniency there's not a lot of grace there's not a lot of uh, cushion that's given there's a very small margin of error that's afforded to people of color that is not afforded to white people i put it like that like mm-hmm. um general market um they you know usually have a more outsized budget they have a bigger budget uh, they're able to make mistakes and it kind of goes under the rug but because you know the minority representation is so small when you make that mistake it's really amplified it's like boom there we go mm-hmm. i told you <laughs> we're gonna move this money to such and such so i basically what i would do i understood that very early so what i would do is start small so like for me it was starting small with, you know, Miles Gray, with, you know, David, all these different people in DC starting small, Quicksilver, all these mm-hmm. people starting small and then showing some easy wins, showing some quick wins, and then allowing those wins to allow us to scale out to like mm-hmm. bigger opportunities, bigger markets, you know, get bigger funding. But I had to like pitch it, educate them on why this makes sense, get some small wins under my belt real quick. Take that back in, repitch to show what could happen if we get more funding, do bigger projects, take that back, show what happened if we get more funding. So now it's like, oh, we see the sales accelerating, we see all this stuff, and now I'm able to get the funding to scale this out to Maryland, to New York, to wherever. You know, so it just comes with being willing to start small and being willing to like, you know, not downsize your dream, not downsize your goals, but you understand your you understand who you're talking to. Understand that, you know, you may have to do this micro version of what you're doing to get that social proof. And then you can scale it to where you ideally want it to be. So that's kind of like my, been my approach for every brand I work for. Just don't start in small, sam- small sample size, kill it. I love that. And then scale it. I, I love that because hopefully on the flip side, and, and one of the things I, I want to cover, you know, these are, I always know it's a great combo because when it's, it's like, you know, I try to keep these on an hour when I'm almost at an hour and I feel like I could go on, I'm like, damn, this is a good one. Uh, but but I want to kind of flip that then, right? So you also now being the brand guy, I know because I'm in the rooms with the artists, your name is on just about every artist board, especially, you know, DC, New York, you know, those markets where you're active, um, where people are like, man, I know Kareem, you know, he can, he can get the bag. He, he's got the Ciroc connector. He's got the Martel connector. He's got the, you know, Brand X connect. And I think one of the things that you just said, uh, I always tell artists like it's the same model, right? Like that sample size is so important. Like at the end of the day, like now that they're hearing it from you directly, like Kareem's got 
one shot to kind of show that this thing makes sense and works and, and, and a wrong shot could set him back greatly. So he's going to be very careful what he picks. And then when he picks it, it has to work, right? Like you're like, I have to go with miles gray because I know what that dude's going to do. Right. I, I have to go with Quicksilver because I know what he's going to do. Right. So that the low hanging fruit or the, 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 the non, the, you know, it's, it's just, it's going to work. And then once you have proof of concept and you can go back and re up, like any game, then it's like, all right, now we can get a little more flexible. Now I can get my guys and go, now I can like do some more creative things, still have to get the wins, but it gives me more leverage. Mm-hmm. Now, when an artist is reaching out to you and, and you know, you're getting these decks and I'm sure you've seen the craziest numbers. I'm trying to do a show, need $50,000. I'm trying to do a tour, need a hundred thousand dollars. And you look at this person and they've got like 3000 followers and, and, you know, songs with no plays what's your advice to an artist and an artist team that's reaching out to you or any brand and just kind of how they pitch slash present themselves, um, you know, as, as an artist trying to work and build a relationship with a brand. I always tell the artist to be very sure on who they are, be very sure on their brand identity, uh, be very sure on who their customer, who their audience is. Um, And, and, and then understand what their values are. Because what happened is I'm a bridge builder. So what I want to do is I don't want to go with a partner that's misaligned with the brand I'm representing. Like if, if, I, if I represent an outdoors brand and you don't like being outdoors, then why would I partner with you? You know, if I represent a brand that's like not a turn up brand, the club is more of a home, more of a brand that's meant to be enjoyed through home entertainment, low vibes, you know, not high energy. Why would I partner with Travis Scott that's turned up in the freaking club and like turned all it's, it's a misalignment. So it's very important for the for the artist to understand who they are, the identity, the occasions they want to play with a brand or work with a brand. Um, and then make a list of brands that match their values, match their identity. And then that way when we come together, we can really be aligned and do something amazing. Because what happens is when you have a misaligned brand brand relationship, the cons- nobody wins. The consumers mm-hmm. see through that. The consumers see it. Oh, he just got to the bag. Or she just got to the bag. Whatever. That's cool. Good. 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 You got to the bag, but it's not influencing them. It's not like it's not going to achieve the desired effect that you're looking for. The brand yeah. is going to be looking at it like, okay, well, they're not even engaging. This is all about engagement now. It's like they're not even really even engaging with this post because they see through it. Um, and then the artist is going to be looking at it as just a check. They're not going to be bought into the brand. So as soon as it's done, they're moving on to the next brand. So I'm all about like sustainable relationships. I try that as much as possible. Again, everything is not in my control, but I try as much as possible the artists that I work with that I had control over working with and artists that I didn't have control over working with, but I was brought in to manage relationships. I tried as much as possible, even when there wasn't a misalignment, to try to build some alignment. So I try to like educate them on the brand talk to them about what the brand is about, bring them into the brand flow, into the brand tribe, into the experience. So I try my best to, as much as possible, if it wasn't alignment, bring alignment. But if there is alignment, strengthen that alignment. But I think that the artists on their end have to do that work too. They have to, they have to make sure that they have done the work on themselves. And it's not just about chasing a bag or going platinum or whatever it is. It's about like understanding what your long-term vision is and understanding how that partner you're going to partner with is going to help you to get to that long-term vision, which connects back to your values. So that makes sense. Like that's kind perfect. of perfect sense. And in fact, it's one of the exercises we've done with artists 
first step we do when we work with any artist is we make them put a vision board together. That's always my first step. And I always challenge them when they come back with the billboards and the Grammys and all the stuff that every artist puts on there to like dig deeper. And I'm saying, all right, now let's assume you've won all of that. Let's assume that we're successful and that's all done. Now give me your real vision board, like beyond the Grammys, beyond the billboard, beyond the playlist, beyond all the accolades, what is your life? And that vision board usually is, is, it's got sports, it's got their friends, it's got their family, it's got traveling, it's got their loved ones. And in that, that's really where I try to find those connections with mm-hmm. brands where I'm like, oh, you play soccer with your brothers? Oh, okay, well, Puma, who we have a relationship with, like they have mm-hmm. a huge soccer campaign coming up. Let them know that you play soccer with your brothers. Like mm-hmm. you may think they want to work with you because you got 5 million streams on Spotify, but really what they want is that you're the older brother who takes his two smaller brothers to the park every Sunday to play soccer because there's more of those people than there are people with 5 million streams. And the people who will buy the sneakers have to relate with that version of you as a person, as well as the fact that you're successful. And, and a, a lot of artists, I feel like miss that, like simple, like beyond the music, who are you? Cause if, if we can explain that to your audience, like to your core audience, the brands will make the most sense in the world. But if we can't explain who you are without the 5 million streams, without the cool photo shoots, without the the artist look, then it's cool to put hashtag ad and get a $10,000, $20,000 budget. But like you said, right. you won't get that engagement. People are not going to click into that because they don't feel connected to that. I mean, we got to be honest, too. Like, there's very few artists today that's relevant for actually the music. Artists are way more relevant today for everything that comes around the music, like their life outside the mm-hmm. studio, what they're doing. Yeah what they're doing with their free time, who they're with, blah, 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 whatever, good or bad. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but in reality, people want personality. They want to see what you do, where your interests are, where you are outside the studio. Where, I mean, what are, you, what are you doing with your children, blah, 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 whatever. And I know that that's a level of intimacy that not everybody's willing to you know, allow people to see, but unfortunately, that's what the consumer has been trained to see mm-hmm. and want from social media. So, but on the, on the positive side of that, sharing some of those interests, um, brands are also watching. So it's like, mm-hmm. hmm, like going back to your point, oh, she's playing soccer. Wow, okay, that's a good opportunity. That's a good mm-hmm. opportunity for, oh, he cooks. Oh, he's in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Oh man, okay, that's mm-hmm. a good opportunity for this. So like, that's very important. If you're gonna have to show your side life, it doesn't have to be gossipy. It could be like, you're just showing yeah. interest in things that you do on your spare time. Think, things you and that's how you attract yeah. new brands, partnerships. Yeah, no, our biggest partner at house was, was Microsoft. And the way we got that, I went to the Microsoft store and bought two Xboxes. And they were like, why are you buying two Xboxes and, and all these games? I was like, oh, I have a recording studio. And I like my artists to like, you know, have fun when they're not in the sessions. Um, mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, you, you know, artists play games? I was like, that's all we do. Like, if we're not in the studio, <laughs> we literally have competitions. Yeah. And they're like, you think we could do a competition here? I was like, you give me your store to do a competition? I'll have this joint packed out. And they didn't believe me because they were having trouble getting people in the, in the doors. Mm-hmm. And they messed around and gave me a little bit of a budget. I had Wale pull up, uh, KD, a bunch of other folks. And like we played an NBA 2K tournament in the Microsoft store in uh, Tyson's Corner. I mean, a line was like around the mall. Kids couldn't get in. And they were so blown away by like our ability to pack out the mall when again, their marketing people couldn't figure out how to get 20 people in the store. And here we are with like 200 plus and a line. And all they gave me, I I don't even, I I didn't know my value then. I think they gave me 500 bucks. They ordered pizza and I think they gave us an Xbox to give away. 
And with that, we were able, and, and what we did was the kids from Howard, we told them, yo, we're doing a video game tournament. If you think you can beat me in Wale, come up, pull up. And we do a raffle for a free Xbox. You already know how that went. They, they came in droves. And then word oh, got yeah. out to like Mason and Maryland. So like, that's just an example of like, people here, we got this Microsoft partnership and we're thinking like, oh, y'all, yeah, da, 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 da. And, and it became a, a, a really big, really good contract and still healthy relationship, friends with them to this day. But like, it started with me buying video games because that's what we did. It didn't start with me writing a long pitch. It didn't start with me saying like, give us money for the studio and we can do content. And it literally was like, yo, I'm here to buy some video games. And they asked me the questions that led to them saying, oh, you think you could do that here? Like, so so it's just, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, if, if you can show those parts of you and be ex- open to those parts of you, the, the world's your oyster because it's not, oh, yeah. you're not stuck. Even like you said, if, if it's a cooking, yes, it could be a cooking product or it could be a restaurant, but it also could be someone like a masterclass who's like, oh, we're trying to get more people who are at home to cook. You are the perfect personality to match with this mm-hmm. brand, this tech company that's doing some cooking content. So I, I love that answer. I got a couple more minutes. I'm actually going to run over with you because I have to. You're the first one. I'm going to go over the 60. Um, but I want to ask you on the flip side now. So you obviously had a, a unique road, a journey. You you get there. You establish yourself. You're working with some of the biggest brands in your industry. You're, you're kicking ass in the city and, and around the world. What's on the other side of success? What does that look like? The other side of success is loneliness. Is loneliness. It's like, especially if you're a person that is audacious, you're a person that is, you see, you see my social media, a person that speaks out on issues, a person that is socially conscious, not only socially conscious, but vocal and socially conscious. You can sometimes feel like you're in a room by yourself, like you're alone, because you, you might speak truth to certain things and issues that you see. But again, it goes back to, we talked about earlier in the conversation, as you look around you, you're around peers that have been in, you know, their roles for a long time. And they've masked so much success. And they, the audacity, the risk-taking, the boldness, the courage, all that has been beaten out of them, you know, by success, that they're not willing to speak on those topics. You know, so it's like, you're the only squeaky wheel. So that, you know, because you're the only squeaky wheel, it's easy for you to be marginalized and things like that. So it's like, it's always that decision you have to make. Like, you know, when you're, when you're in corporate America, like, man, like, do I speak out on certain things? Do I let things slide? But if you don't speak out on certain things, then our representation, you know, never gets to where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, um, entrepreneurship, even, even entrepreneurship, like if you don't speak out on certain things, funding for black and brown entrepreneurs don't really come in. If you don't, if you're not that squeaky wheel and speak to, speak to, you know, the, you know, the people that are at the power structure, that are at the top of the power structure in those industries, but you don't speak to that truth structure, they're not going to think, oh, I need to invest more of this into these, you know, black and brown businesses, uh, or I need to put more women of color, more black women, more black men, more Asian men, more LGBT men and women into leadership positions on the board and things like that. If no one speaks to it, but what you'll find is that as people get more and more successful, is less voices of people talking and addressing these different topics. They don't want to become, you know, pointed out and, you know, run the risk of not being promoted, run the risk of being let go or whatever. So, like, 
it's definitely a sense of loneliness on the other side if you are a person that's like socially conscious and really about the culture, right? Like really about the people. I've experienced that for sure. Um, yeah, that's one of the biggest things I would say. Mm. And, I, and I, I will definitely make sure we share your socials because like I said, I'm, I'm constantly motivated by just the, the honesty and the rawness and, and what you share and how you share it. Um, and again, coming from someone who works with, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world, it is refreshing to hear that, but then it translates. I can also then see the impact you have on some of the brands who then are more vocal than they probably would have been if you mm -hmm. weren't in a room saying, Hey y'all, this is happening in the world and we need to speak up. Like it's, it's now it's, it's weird. I'm sure for you as well. Like today, it seems like every brand has a conscious and every brand has a soul, but there was a point in time where brands ignored all the things that were happening to multiple groups of people for decades, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, especially being black and brown, especially in America, there were brands that we supported and loved and like built. And, and those brands would be definitely silent when things would happen in our community and we would give them a pass. And I love that now, you know, brands are aware that, that they don't get that pass. I think it almost has gone too far where now, you know, it's, it's almost like too much. So, so now it's about action for me. I'm like, all right, anyone can share a post and say like, we stand and we, you know, support. Yeah. But I want to know, like you say, are you creating opportunities? Are you putting your money where your mouth is? Are you, are you reaching your neck out there and like being more than just vocal, but like putting action behind it, big brand. And those see, a lot brands of, a lot of even in our happens. circle, we want to work with. A lot of stuff that happens in corporate is very cosmetic. It's very aesthetically driven. So like, if you don't have people like yourself, like what you're doing with your show is amazing. And me, what I do with social media in, in these rooms, they'll fall back to sleep. People will fall back to sleep and you'll see this at the time. They'll fall back to sleep until there's another George Floyd, you know, uh, incident. And there's another massive protest and massive social unrest. And then everybody will run back to the messaging. Everybody will run back and start funding. But if you don't be careful, if you're not careful to like continue the conversation and continue to point the finger at the issue and solution, try to come to solution, then it's going to it's gonna always be that cycle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and with me, I know we ran out of time, but I will say this too. The vocal piece is not just to speak to like the social inequities and that in terms of representation in terms of jobs and things like that. It also means representation in the advertising and marketing. There's been so many situations where I look at advertising like, and I, 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 advertising is rooted in the assumption that mm -hmm. black people are monolith. Like mm -hmm. we all think the same, we all look the same, we all want the same, we're all motivated by 50 Cent, we're all motivated by hip hop, we're all like NBA players. Mm -hmm. We're all like, it's, this, it's the same like narrow version of black life. Yeah. There's no black joy captured. Mm -hmm. There's no like, Black leisure captured. There's no, there's no diversity of a Black life being captured in the actual advertising and marketing communication, unless there's a person like myself that's like, wait, hold on, pause, pump your brakes. Like, every Black person don't want, you know, this. Every Black person doesn't like this. Matter of fact, you know, in a city of, you know, D.C., you have, like, African-Americans, you have Caribbean-Americans, you have, you know, Ethiopian-Americans, you have a diversity of Blackness uh, it's not just a monolith. So you mm -hmm. got to understand these local cultural nuances. And when you're going to do a campaign, you got to be very mindful of that. So you need somebody like myself to speak to that diversity, that breadth of culture. Otherwise, you know, and then, but the thing about it is I'm on, if I'm the only person that's doing that, it becomes exhausting. Yeah. And then it's like, you have another person in the room, like, oh, here we go again. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, it, you need that, <laughs> you need that unity of voices 
in order to make some real change. Otherwise, the person that is that one voice becomes exhausted. And that's the loneliness we're talking about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, the 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 higher you get on on the ladder of success, the the fewer people look like you. That that that's my experience. And and you you almost yearn for like it's weird. I found myself as as we were making more money and as we we're being more successful in business and life, I would miss I'd yearn for the days where we first started out where I was in it because I was like, man, like I go to these meetings and like no one looks like me. And then, then like, this doesn't feel right. So now I'm on a mission. It's why I've started this thing. Cause my goal is like, I want to make sure that the executives and the lawyers and the agents and the brand folk, like everyone around the artists, like move up together so that you, you, you're not like, all right, well now you've reached this level of success, get rid of all your black friends. And now you got to go with all white folks, all Jewish folks, all like mm-hmm. there, there has to be like, nah, like if I want dope marketing, I can go to this guy who looks like me and understands my life. Cause it's not even just a look. It's mm-hmm. like, I, I know that he understands what I'm thinking and going through, not as a monolith, but because specifically things culturally that connect with me, connect with him or her. That's the person I need to sit at the table when I'm doing my campaigns. That's the person I need to sit at the table when I'm negotiating my deal. That's the person I need to sit at the table when I'm doing my accounting. So I, I agree. And, and hopefully, you know, like I said, if, if we can spark one person to, to listen to this and say, man, I want to be, I want to have the audacity that Kareem had. We've done our job. So uh, I will yeah. now go to the last question, the question I ask everybody, which is if you could go back and I'm going to go pre, let me see where I'll go with this. I'll go pre-enterprise Kareem. If you can go back and give pre-enterprise Kareem a word of advice, what's what's the word of advice that you would give to yourself, that younger, less experienced, but audacious version of yourself? Um, never lose yourself in pursuit of success. Mm. That's the big repeat thing that one more time. I love that. I'm, I'm a, that's a clip for me. Never lose yourself in the pursuit of success. That's it. Never lose yourself in pursuit of success. That's that's a powerful one. That's so yeah. we know we're gonna have to get you back because that alone is a one hour plus conversation. Because I got yeah. stories for that. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. I appreciate that, and I hope I hope somebody hears it at the right moment in time. That's my prayers. I like someone's listening to this wherever in time they are, because this lives forever. And there's always going to be that person that's getting ready to make that life changing decision that hopefully they hear this and they're like, you know what, Kareem, I really you're pray right. they do. I pray yeah. they do. Definitely. All right. Well, brother, brother Kareem, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your efforts. I appreciate your work. Uh, and, and I, I look forward to being a part of your journey as you continue. And I hope you continue to share your journey because it is inspiring. Like I said, I'm, I'm always inspired every time I see you speak out and speak up for us. So thank you. Likewise, man. I appreciate you creating this platform. People like me to get our stories out, our narratives out. I mean, you're a treasure, man. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. We got much more to do. Likewise. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you, brother. All right. Take care.